The following is a Podcast One and Reels Channel presentation. This program contains graphic content and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. I've seen some terrible cases, but never anything quite as brutal as this. In the annals of serial murder, he is chapter one. We're talking about the most notorious serial killer of all time. Do you know what the newspapers are calling him now? Jack the Ripper. During a span of 10 weeks in the autumn of 1888, an unstoppable human butcher roams the streets of London's East End, slaughtering and mutilating unsuspecting young women within a single square mile area. Jack the Ripper didn't want to just kill women. He wanted to obliterate them. To silence a victim so quickly, it's, it's a man of great strength. With each frightful murder, the victims are increasingly brutalized until, toward the end of his bloody spree, little remains of what were once human beings. Day after day, gruesome, graphic stories. Forget anything you may have heard about a gentleman Jack. The woman's body had been completely ripped open and the entrails no found on... He was no gentleman. He's a butcher of animals, if you ask me. There are so many myths that shroud this case, but really the truth is far more terrifying. He was a man whose hatred for women and depraved curiosity about the human body were so extreme. Nothing but his own complete mental collapse would put an end to the bloodbath. He's a special kind of crazy. Was the answer to history's greatest unsolved case known to police all along? Meet Jack the Ripper. You frightened me. A shadowy loner otherwise forgotten to history. Until murder made him famous. No other killer has achieved the worldwide notoriety of the person we call Jack the Ripper. A degenerate psychopath who terrorized Victorian London during what is known as the Autumn of Terror. More than a century of non-fiction books, novels, movies, and documentaries have chronicled the infamous case. Everything from comic books to video games to the Star Trek television series have drawn on elements of the Ripper tale. In 2001, the film From Hell, starring Johnny Depp, cast its own fictitious spin on the crimes. An entire industry, including daily tours of the murder sites, has been built around the Jack the Ripper phenomenon. If you want to get down to it, Jack the Ripper was the prototype of the modern supervillain. You don't have the Joker if you don't have Jack the Ripper. Theories about the Ripper's identity range from the plausible to the absurd. My personal favorite is the one that is the belief around it being Prince Albert. Sort of anything that would have a royal angle would make it feel more interesting. It seems that anyone who is alive at the time, whether they were in London or not, has been accused of being Jack the Ripper, from Van Gogh to uh, the Elephant Man. Before we can make a compelling case for a suspect, we must first understand the context of the Ripper's crimes. Five murders are officially ascribed to Jack the Ripper, though some assert that number is as high as 11. His victims, aging in range from 25 to 47, were easy prey. Those referred to by the local population as unfortunates. Women who had turned to prostitution to stay alive in what was one of the most bleak and poverty-stricken pockets of the civilized world. If we were to right now time travel to the east end of London, the first thing that would hit us would be the smell. The second thing that we would encounter would be people without any hope left. 
you know, you sink down and down and down, and then rock bottom is Whitechapel. And that's where Jack the Ripper went hunting. Whitechapel, a tiny district in London's East End, named after a chapel that stood near its center, was home to squalid lodging houses, sweatshops, crowded pubs and music halls, narrow cobblestone streets, and dark labyrinthine alleyways. Prostitution was legal and rampant, often because it was the only way to afford food or a bed for the night. Alcohol helped make existence bearable in what for many was a daily battle for survival. As much crime as there was in Whitechapel at the time, murder was relatively uncommon. That is, until the Autumn of Terror. Friday, August 31st, 1888. At approximately 3.45 a.m., police constable John Neal walks his beat along Bucks Row, a dark, narrow thoroughfare. As he approaches a gate to a stable, he stops and glances at what looks like a tarp bunched on the ground. When he steps closer, he realizes it's the body of a woman. The body is still warm, and her eyes are wide open. An examination of the victim is performed by Dr. Reese Ralph Llewellyn and attended by Metropolitan Police Inspector John Spratling. I've seen some terrible cases, but never anything quite as brutal as this. You say no one had this call in this radio? No. Could she have been murdered elsewhere in the moved to the not without some sort of blood trail to the body. We didn't find anything like that. Two deep incisions, roughly eight inches in length, all the way down to the vertebrae, severing all the tissues and vessels. A long bladed knife, moderately sharp. Incisions running from the abdomen to the pubis. It would take an extraordinarily strong person to be able to drag a knife all the way through the body because there's fat and tendons and muscle and ligaments, all that are going to be in the way. It appears the intestines are protruding through the incisions. Help me get undressed, won't you? The victim is identified as 43-year-old Mary Ann Nichols, better known by her nickname, Polly. Like most victims, no verifiable photograph of Polly exists in life. Polly Nichols had uh, five children, and she just floated down the spectrum of vice and ended up in the East End, an alcoholic. On the night of her death, she went out drunk on Whitechapel Road. Um, some people who knew her were stopped by her, um, and she asked for money, and they didn't have it. And then the next person she spoke to would have been Jack the Ripper. Though Polly Nichols is murdered in Bucks Row, her death certificate lists a lodging house on Dorset Street as her address. Also living in that lodging house is a prostitute named Annie Chapman. And across the street at 13 Miller's Court lives a young Irish prostitute named Mary Jane Kelly. There's every reason to believe that some or even many of Jack the Ripper's victims knew each other. It's known that uh, Mary Kelly and Annie Chapman would both drink at the Ten Bells pub. Who would do such a thing? God knows. I'm so afraid. Aren't you? I can handle myself on the streets. 
If anyone tries to knife me, I'll knee him right in the trinkets. Annie Chapman had actually uh, come from pretty good stock. She lived on the West End, had married, um, had a good life until alcoholism led to the dissolution of her marriage. And she drifted off to the East End. She received sporadic alimony from her husband, but then he died in 1886, and she was on her own. On the day she was killed, Annie Chapman complained to a friend that she was feeling ill. That's not surprising, considering that she was suffering from tuberculosis and perhaps syphilis as well. On the final night of her life, uh, she didn't have the money for her DOS, which was her rent for the night. What is it, Annie? Uh, I've been ill, Tim, and I don't have enough money for my bed. But please, don't give it away. I'll return soon. You always have money for your beer. But you don't have any money for your bed. I'm not drinking. I don't feel well. But I'll be back soon, I promise. Annie Chapman was turned out by her lodging housekeeper and sent into the streets of Whitechapel in the middle of the night in hopes of finding someone who would want to buy what she was selling, which was herself. Uh, this led her to Hanbury Street. Are you all right? Yes, I'm all right. Well, I'll give you the business if you like. A witness passing by, Elizabeth Long, hears the following words exchanged between Annie and her companion. Are you? Yes. Annie led Jack into the backyard. So it stands to reason that her killer had gained her trust. Go on, what are you waiting for? Author Tom Westcott introduces a new theory on the Ripper's M.O. in his book, Ripper Confidential, that might explain a long-standing mystery. Her hands were clenched, but her rings were missing that were on her hand. And what this told us is that Jack the Ripper had, in fact, mugged her prior to attacking her. Not a sound. Take off your rings and give them to me. Because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to get the rings off of her fingers and left them in that curled position. They did not think, this is Jack the Ripper, they this is a common, everyday street mugger. And b before they could do anything, he had his arm around their neck and was was knocking them unconscious. So that gives us an insight into how Jack the Ripper would lure his victims into compliance. When he was killing Annie Chapman, when he was butchering her, he had 17 windows staring down on him from a packed lodging house. Anybody could have looked out their window and seen him, and he was able to leave unimpeded. Annie's abdomen had been completely laid open, and her intestines had been lifted out and placed over her shoulder. Her uterus, her vagina, and most of her bladder had been cut out, and they were missing.
He did things deliberately with parts of their bodies, putting their intestines on their shoulder, for example, to make sure that the person that found them had the most intense emotional experience from the discovery. Whitechapel goes into a panic. Authorities had no idea that the killer was just warming up. September 8, 1888. Whitechapel prostitute Annie Chapman is murdered behind a lodging house. Near her body is discovered a leather apron. Though it belonged to one of the residents, it would fan flames of anti-Semitism in Whitechapel. Following the murder of Polly Nichols, um, the police interviewed her lodging house mates, and these women described a character that they referred to as Leather Apron. Uh, And he would have been Jewish. Uh, He worked on shoes or made shoes. And he would wear a leather apron and prowl the streets, um, harassing women, basically. And so this became a media sensation. Before the name Jack the Ripper was heard, there was the name Leather Apron. John Pizer was named by the police as Leather Apron, paraded before the press, and then eventually cleared of, of any wrongdoing. The fact that the newspapers played up on the image of Jack the Ripper as some kind of snarling Jew prowling the streets, hunchback with a leather apron, uh, may have, in fact, led to the, the death of some of these women by virtue of the fact that this is who they were looking out for. Jack was the first case where media had this level of involvement. It is the beginning of news inspiring fear. Another murder. Mary Kelly's live-in boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, often reads newspaper accounts to Mary. The woman's body had been completely ripped open and the entrails... No more, please. This is the fate of the unfortunates, Mary. One of the things that uh, the newspapers did was go into great detail and exaggerated detail about the circumstances of the crimes and the mutilations of the victims. It can create fear in, in a population. But newspapers receive the greatest gift of all when a mysterious letter arrives at the Central News Agency of London. In what is now referred to as the Dear Boss Letter, the author, claiming to be the killer, signs his name, Jack the Ripper. The Dear Boss Letters, a lot of people think that those were written by journalists. The reporters made up this story. Meanwhile, vigilance committees of concerned citizens assemble in Whitechapel to patrol streets and assist police. On Wednesday, September 26th, a group of women are overheard discussing the murders at a lodging house on Flower and Dean Street. One of the women is named Elizabeth Stride. He's a butcher of animals, if you ask me. Someone from one of the slaughterhouses. Someone who knows how to use a knife and bloody well. What's to become of us? The police don't get it. If they did, they wouldn't let this go on. The less unfortunates on the street, the better. We're all up to no good, you know. No one cares what will become of us. Maybe one of us will be next. Elizabeth Stride had been born and raised in Sweden and then migrated to uh, the UK where she married John Stride. They had a a coffee shop at one time, but for whatever reason, again, probably due to alcoholism, uh, her life took a turn for the worse. 
On September 30th, Elizabeth Stride would be the first in what was to become known as the double event. She had gone to Burner Street. We're not sure why, but most likely she was attracted by the uh, this Jewish club that was very active that night. The windows were open. The people inside were singing. You could hear them. You knew there were a lot of men there. Uh, one such man was passing by. Uh, she spoke to him. He handled her roughly, threw her to the street. This was witnessed. And yet another man came around the corner smoking a pipe. One of these two men is probably Jack the Ripper. Now what's interesting is Ripperologists assume that the first man, the man who had pulled Liz Stride, and it was Liz Stride, pulled her out and threw her down, that this would have been her likely killer, and understandably so. But there was another witness by the name of James Brown who came out and saw Liz Stride alive standing talking to a man who more closely resembles the pipe-smoking man. Uh, he was speaking with her. James Brown heard her say the words, not tonight, some other night. One of the curious things about Elizabeth Stride's murder is the fact that she was not mutilated to the extent the other victims were. That's to say she was um, rendered unconscious, laid down, and her throat was cut one time. He may have been interrupted by the steward of the club, Louis Deemschitz, who was arriving at 1 a.m. with his pony and cart. He may have interrupted Jack the Ripper. This murder illustrates just how brazen Jack the Ripper was. He literally killed Liz Stride just feet away from a large group of men. When you look at serial killers, there is truly a compulsion to the act. When you take somebody who has a compulsive mindset, who is in that kind of place, and you interrupt their work, they become single-minded and myopic, where the only thing he would have been able to think about is... I didn't finish. At the moment that Elizabeth Stride was being murdered in Dutfield's yard, uh, Catherine Eddowes was being released from a drunk cell at the Bishop's Gate police station. Sign this. What time is it? Too late for you to get anything to drink. I'm going to get a damn fine hiding when I get home. Serves you right. You take care going home. Oh, don't fear for me. I won't fall into his hands. Catherine Eddowes, by all descriptions, was lively, was humorous, was fun, was probably a firecracker. Believing her sober enough to take care of herself at 1 a.m., she um, left and 
she was walking in the direction opposite of where she should have been going to return to her lodgings, probably off to seek a client for the night to pay for those lodgings. Uh, roughly a 15-minute walk away from Burner Street and 45 minutes after the murder of Elizabeth Stride, um, Catherine Eddowes met her end in the darkest corner of Mitre Square. for a constable, you know. There's no need. Is there something I can do for you, then? I should think so. Mm. You look like a gent. You look into bump bellies, are you? Three men passing by later describe a woman fitting Catherine's description talking with a man. Her hand is on his chest. I think perhaps we can work something out. Good. Having been chased away from his last victim, Jack has special plans for Catherine Eddowes. Am I worth a shilling? And he's about to leave a clue. You're worth nothing. Murder Made Me Famous. We'll be back after a word from our sponsors. This program contains graphic content and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. Several Ripper victims show signs of strangulation. He would have had his arm around her throat and performed a carotid chokehold, where basically he just applies pressure to the carotid arteries of their neck until they pass out, which just takes a few seconds. We can essentially rule him out as a sexual sadist um, in terms of how he kills because a sadist would want their victim alive. He would want to watch them suffer. He'd want to watch them hurt. With him, the goal was about the damage being done to the body after the fact and the impact that damage will have on the people that find the body. Once he slit her throat, that then becomes, for lack of a better way of describing it, performance art. All of the ripping was done post-mortem. That he is doing either for himself or for whoever or whomever finds the body. Before leaving the scene, the ripper tears off a portion of Catherine's apron, presumably for carrying his trophies. Less than nine minutes after last being seen alive... Catherine Eddowes' body is discovered by police constable Edward Watkins. I think what we see in the mutilation of Catherine Eddowes, we see the freneticness that came out of his failed work with Elizabeth Stride. It is a statement of this person is so 
awful and so distasteful that I'm going to try and mar everything about her. I'm going to change and alter everything I can get my hands on about her to show the world how bad and dirty and evil she is. Motive is interesting in the Ripper case. Some have speculated that he'd contracted syphilis from a prostitute and these killings were an act of vengeance. But even if that's true, it's clear that there were deeper and more sinister issues at work here. He hated women, and all he wanted was to rip them to shreds. He murders Catherine Eddowes. He mutilates her. He stops off at Goulston Street, deposits this apron in a doorway, kneels down, pulls out a piece of chalk, and writes a message that is still debated about to this day. The gist of it seems to have been, the Jews are the men who will not be blamed for nothing. But the second word was not J-E-W-S. It was J-U-W-E-S or J-E-W-E-S or J-U-E-W-E-S. Some variation on that assumed to mean Jews. What I believe it was, was I believe that the Ripper was aware that he had not disemboweled Elizabeth Stride. He had not left his trademark. He wanted to make it clear to the police that he killed both women that evening. He was responsible for killing Stride, who was found in, the, in a Jewish club. Terrified citizens demand action by the police. You can imagine that after the double event, panic in Whitechapel was at a frenzy. And with the release of the Dear Boss letter, written by an enterprising journalist, the killer now had a name, Jack the Ripper. Scotland Yard official Sir Robert Anderson, on medical leave since the first Ripper murder, is ordered to take charge of the investigation by Home Secretary Sir Henry Matthews. I trust your holiday in Switzerland and France was relaxing. It was a recuperative break ordered by my doctor. Yes, well, meanwhile, two more women are dead, and the panic in Whitechapel is at a fever pitch. Have you read the press lately? Begging your pardon, Mr. Secretary. But had the police arrested all the known street women on the prowl after midnight, this would never have happened. Mr. Anderson, I am holding you responsible to find the murderer. Is that understood? I hold myself responsible and will use all legitimate means to do so. Roughly two weeks following the double event murders of Liz Stride and Catherine Eddowes, a gentleman by the name of George Lusk, who was the chairman of a vigilance committee of citizens out hunting the Ripper, received a package in the mail. It was a very small package. Um, it contained only two things, a note and half of a human kidney. From hell, Mr. Lusk, sir, I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman and preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out, if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Interestingly, it's not signed Jack the Ripper, and the poor grammar seems to indicate that the writer is foreign and spelling out English words phonetically. 
if Jack the Ripper wrote the From Hell letter, what does it say that it's signed from hell? It says that's precisely where he was in the autumn of 1888, in his mind. He was in hell. Two weeks after the From Hell letter is received, Mary Jane Kelly and live-in boyfriend Joseph Barnett have an argument about Mary sharing their dwelling with other prostitutes. Kara, she's not allowed back here. You keep her out. I won't. You will. I won't. Not with a maniac on the loose. It's not safe. Let us just see how safe it is when I'm gone. Oh, yeah? Where are you going? To Bishop's Gate. You can take in as many prostitutes as you'd like. Well, go. Leave. He didn't like her hanging out with women who were prostitutes. He didn't want her associated with that. And the fight where he stormed out and left was over her trying to bring these women into the room. Mary Jane Kelly uh, was younger than most of the other victims, um, around the age of 25. Her true identity in the historical record has yet to be found. Mary Jane Kelly, many believe, was not her real name. She was Irish. She was attractive by all accounts, long hair, um, always kept her aprons clean. She had not fallen quite so far as the others yet due to her youth, so she was able to command more money and afford her own room. She did not have to live in the lodging houses. She would often be seen at the Ten Bells pub. And you're a sight for sore eyes. <laughs> oh, you're a proper bit of prop, you are. You want to take a turn? For what payment? Oh, I don't know. Let's see how much you're worth. Where are we going? Where no one will ever find us. No. No, no. Were you a whore or what? Go in and starve then. See if I care. Mary fears the Ripper. But how long can her instincts protect her? You're me. More than three weeks had passed since the double event. Was the nightmare over? Had the Ripper finally gotten his fill? In the early evening hours of November 8th, Mary Kelly is in her rented room with a 20-year-old neighbor named Lizzie Albrook. Do you know what the newspapers are calling him now? Jack the Ripper. I don't want to think about it. It's possible. Will you promise me something, Lizzie? What? Don't go doing wrong like I did. Forget the streets. Find some good in your life. Get as far away from here as you can. Do you know what I'd do if I could? Not. I'd go back to Ireland. I'd see my family again. I'd even talk to my father. Perhaps you will someday. Why does he hate us so? I don't know. Annie was murdered just up the street, Lizzie. He could be out there now. Waiting. Stop it, Mary. Don't answer it. Who is it? Joe. Come in. 
Come in. This is my friend Lizzie. She lives across the hall. I, I was just leaving. Joseph Barnett would later tell police of visiting Mary for the last time. Stay warm tonight. I will. Thank you. Have you eaten today? No. Why are you going to buy me dinner? You know I haven't had any work. Yes. Are you going out tonight? I don't want you going out tonight, Mary. It's it's rent is due tomorrow. Mr. Boyes come by. I have nothing to give him. You're not a whore anymore. No. What would you call me then? What happened to the woman I knew? She's gone forever. Life will do that to you. I came to see how you were. I've done so. He despised the idea of prostitution and could barely tolerate any idea of Mary going out and putting herself in a position where she would be prostituting herself. There is an unconfirmed report that Mary is later seen drinking with a woman named Elizabeth Foster at the Ten Bells pub. After midnight, Mary is heard by neighbors singing the song A Violet from Mother's Grave. Mary reportedly often sings when she is drunk. Mary is later seen near Flower and Dean Street by acquaintance George Hutchinson. George! 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 George, would you lend me a sixpence? Uh, I haven't got it, Mary. I've spent all the money going down to Romford. I, I need to make some money. You be careful now. the newspaper. She was informed about Jack the Ripper, about the murders. Whoever she ran across on the street that night did not set off any alarm bells. Why? Because he looked nothing like who the press was telling us to be on the lookout for. Will you take me to your room? I'm not in the habit of taking men to my room. Will you do it for a half crown? A half crown? It's too cold for a tumble out here. <laughs> yes. Hutchinson overhears the man say the words. You'll be all right for what I have told you. <laughs> Hutchinson claims he follows the pair back to Mary's residence at 13 Miller's Court, where he hears Mary utter... Come along, dear. You'll be comfortable. 
he notices the man is carrying a small parcel. Will you be paying me first, then? Mary Kelly had taken off her clothes and had put on a camise or a nightgown, which she was wearing when she got into bed. going to get interest. The killer would have been nude and got in beside her. She got in first. She was nearest the wall. It's a parcel for her anyway. This hmm. is something for you. The killer cut her throat, spraying the wall in front of her with blood. She was absolutely alive and probably conscious when this happened. Outside, waiting, George Hutchinson hears nothing. Jack now has the luxury of privacy and time with his victim. What this killer wanted to do was completely destroy any notion of her as a human being. He was literally trying to remove any trace of her from the earth. This is the height of Jack the Ripper's depravity. Mary had been completely disemboweled. The flesh had been stripped from her abdomen and her thighs all the way to the bone and was piled on the bedside table. Both of her breasts had been removed. Her heart was missing and presumed taken by the killer. Her nose had been completely cut off and her face was hacked beyond recognition. Hutchinson waits until the clock tower strikes 3 a.m., then leaves. He spent, uh, who knows, an hour and a half, two hours or more butchering her body from head to toe. Um, before putting on his clothes, turning around, and walking out that door and into history. Late the following morning, rent collector Thomas Boyer knocks on Mary's door. When he gets no answer, he walks around the corner and looks in the window. Upon seeing the body, Mary's landlord remarked that it looked more like the work of a devil than of a man. The final sad legacy of Mary Jane Kelly is that she is the subject of one of the first crime scene photographs ever taken. Dear Lord Salisbury, this new and most ghastly murder shows the absolute necessity for some very decided action.
Even Queen Victoria herself is outraged at the inability of Scotland Yard to find and stop Jack the Ripper. But inexplicably, the crimes of Jack the Ripper stop with Mary Jane Kelly. Why did the Ripper murders stop with Mary Kelly? No one really knows. Famed FBI profiler John Douglas characterizes her killer and mutilator as a man who was at the end of his emotional rope. It's a man who did not know where to go to from there. But he went somewhere. He walked out of that room into the night, and he went somewhere. Where? We don't know. While it's likely that Mary Kelly was the Ripper's last victim, Polly Nichols may not have been his first victim. And that victim, revealed for the first time, may have lived to tell about it. It's possible that Polly Nichols was not Jack the Ripper's first victim that evening. Uh, just around the corner from where her body was found, it was discovered a bloody handprint and other blood droplets on the street. It wasn't Polly Nichols. Her hands were clean of blood. Neighbors on that street heard a woman screaming the word murder while she ran from yard to yard hitting houses. They didn't find the woman. And so I, it occurred to me to look into the London Hospital archives. And in there I found the name of a woman named Margaret Millows, who was admitted the next day with a wound to her arm, deep, severing, hitting the artery, going along her arm, just like you would expect to find if someone had put up their arm in defense of a knife attack. Now, I don't know that this woman was a Jack the Ripper victim, but I do know that later newspaper reports talk about a surviving victim, and I discuss those in my book. If we don't believe in coincidences, there may have been the one that got away. Which leads us to the greatest question in the history of crime. Who was Jack the Ripper? If we travel back in time, we get a tantalizing clue from the man who headed up the investigation, Sir Robert Anderson. In his memoir, he claims police knew the Ripper's name, but he declined to share it. Oh no, we got him. We caught the Ripper. We just can't name him. Um, and, and he was just outside the reach of the law. We couldn't prosecute him because we didn't have the proof, but we knew who he was. Now here's the interesting part. A close friend of Anderson's was Chief Inspector Donald Swanson. In 1987, a copy of Anderson's memoir was released to the public with notes from Swanson written in the margins. Those notes gave the name of the suspect, Kosminski. Aaron Kosminski, a Polish immigrant who had worked as a barber, was picked up on the street by police after being found incoherent. Kosminski reportedly heard voices, a telltale sign of schizophrenia. He was admitted to the Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum in 1891 and remained in custody until he died in 1919. Swanson goes on to describe one of the witnesses in relation to the Ripper murders looking at Kosminski, being taken to view him and hesitating to name him as the Ripper, but then conceding that he was. Aaron Kosminski lived at Three Cyan Square in Whitechapel, practically dead center of all five murders. Evidence suggests he was raised in an environment of sexual violence, and police at the time describe him as a man with a great hatred of women and strong homicidal tendencies. 
Aaron Kosminski is a highly desirable suspect from the standpoint of the inspectors and of Scotland Yard. While disputed by many experts, DNA evidence in 2014 tenuously linked Kosminski to a shawl reportedly owned by Catherine Eddowes. Will we ever truly know who Jack the Ripper was? Probably not. But Aaron Kosminski is certainly an intriguing possibility. Will Jack the Ripper ever be positively identified? I'm inclined to say not to the satisfaction of everyone. That concludes this episode of Murder Made Me Famous. Don't forget to go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for clips, extras, and more. And don't forget to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts.